Hey, it's Andy. Welcome or welcome back to the Woodstock City Church Podcast. At the end of this episode, please take a moment to download the Woodstock City Church app where you can access all of our recent message content as well as find out about what's going on around Woodstock City Church. And the app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. So uh, back in 2015 or so, Google, uh, the search engine that all of us people use, uh, did a, uh, a survey. They, went, they did some research on they wanted to figure out what made um, their highest performing teams so effective. And so they did kind of just this internal research group, took them over two years to do hundreds and hundreds of interviewers with Googlers. That's what they call their employees, by the way. Uh, you're not one because you use it. Uh, so they, they, they did all this research um, and they identified five key dynamics um, that were present on all of their most effective, highest performing teams. Um, and, and, and some of them aren't going to be shocking, um, but the number one most common thing that was seen, the number one most common dynamic that was seen um, amongst all of their highest performing teams was shocking. But let me just show you what the five were. Um, uh, impact um, of work was one that teams that could see that their work was actually making um, an impact, a significant impact um, and change. Uh, they were tended to be higher performing teams. Uh, meaning of work came in at number four as an important dynamic, meaning there was purpose behind what they were doing. Coming to number three was structure and clarity, right? Again, makes sense. The more structure they had, the more clear they were on what they were doing, how they were doing it, and their goal. Um, those teams tended to be more higher performing. And then second, uh, dependability. Could, they, could the team members depend on each other? Was there follow through? Um, could they depend on each other? Um, and that made them um, higher performing teams. However, the, 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 and these aren't necessarily surprising. I don't think these were surprising to any of the Google people that did this research. But um, by and large, the number one greatest dynamic that uh, led to a, the effectiveness of a high-performing team uh, surprised Google. It surprised the business community that this study kind of, in fact, some of you guys have probably seen this, read this. Um, the number one most common um, dynamic that was present on their highest-performing teams was something called psychological safety. Psychological safety. And psychological safety is this. It's team members feel safe to take risks and be vulnerable in front of of each other. When you read Google executives who, who, who were doing this study and the researchers, they were blown away that this was the number one, by far and away, the most common dynamic on the highest performing teams. It's teams that had psychological safety with each other. Ones that did not have the fear of being vulnerable with one another. And since then, um, right, psychological safety is it's, it's kind of studied um, all over now. Um, studies show that psychological safety um, allows for team members to take moderate risks. It, it, it creates space for them to speak openly, to speak their minds, uh, to create space for more creativity. Um, it allows, it gives people the courage to stick their neck out with an idea or with a challenge or with a pushback, and they're not nervous um, that their head's going to get cut off as a result. And, and, and what studies have shown is that psychological safety that leads to this kind of behavior ultimately leads to market breakthroughs. 
okay? Now, you're not here to hear a business lecture. Here's why I tell you all this. If you are, I'm sorry, you're gonna be disappointed. You were hopeful for the first three minutes. But um, if, if, you, if you are like a business leader or, or, or you work with people or you lead people, this has been an impactful study for me personally. It has affected and changed in a positive way the way that I lead our staff, the way I lead our teams. Um, psychological safety, you can ask any of our teams, it's become a joke. Um, that, that, that's what I, wanna, what, what I wanna create. But like, um, so this is really, really important to me. And so just even, just you take that for what it's worth if you lead people, um, it's so impactful. But yes, in, in the business community, in the business world, psychological safety is proven to lead to market breakthroughs. There's more creativity. There's more innovation. That's great. Um, But I bring this up as we close out our series because I also believe um, it is an essential dynamic, maybe the most essential dynamic, um, safety, for you and I to experience relational breakthroughs. Um, The dynamic of safety, the dynamic of you and I feeling safe with other people as we try to be connected to the other people is an essential component of you and I living in the community that we were created for. Safety. More on that in just a second. We are wrapping up, if you're tuning in for the first time, uh, we're wrapping up our series that we've been in for the past few weeks called Find My Friends, Being Known, Being Known in a Lonely World. And, and I can't encourage you to, to, to catch up if you haven't seen any of the previous weeks, but the big idea is this, let me just get all of us on the same page, is that we live in a world that is more disconnected than ever before. More connected through technology than ever before, but more disconnected than ever before. Loneliness rates are higher than they've ever been. And kind of the whole point of this series is that for you and I to thrive in life and in faith, it has to happen in the context of community, of, of, of figuring out what it looks like to cultivate the life-giving friendships that we were created for. We talk to our kids about their friends, but we often don't talk to each other as adults about our need for friends. We never outgrow the need for love, connection, and belonging. And we said this last week, right? You remember this? It takes a village to raise a child. That is certainly true. But it really takes a village to thrive in life and in your faith. And no matter what you do or don't believe about faith, you felt this. No matter what you do or don't believe about Jesus, you felt this need that you have. In fact, we've talked all series about how our brains are hardwired to tell us that something is wrong and something is off when we're experiencing loneliness and living in isolation. It is unnatural at best and detrimental at worst. And the God that created you and the God that created me designed this whole thing called life in such a way that there would always be something missing from your life if life-giving friendships and community was missing from your life. And so as we close out um, the series of conversations today, um, we're gonna get into um, maybe the most uncomfortable part of the conversation. Um, Because where I wanna go today is I want to challenge you with the idea that for you and I to live in the context of friendships and community that we were created for, we've got to let people get scary close. Scary close. Immediately when I think of scary close, the image that comes to my head is, you know those mirrors in a hotel room magnify your face by 50, you know? Maybe some of y'all have that. I don't, but when I go to a hotel, you think your skin looks good and then you're like, oh gosh, no, it doesn't. It looks like the moon, you know what I mean? Letting people get scary close. Close enough to see the real you. Close enough for people to see what's behind 
the facade that we're all so good at putting up. Letting people get close enough to see what we've hidden from others for far too long. And this morning, we're gonna kind of unpack this relational paradox that we have all felt. This relational paradox that is just a part of being human. And the relational paradox kind of in two parts looks like this, that we desire connection but fear being known. We desire it, we crave connection, but we fear being known. And then kind of the second half of that is that we fear being known, but long to experience the freedom of being known. We long to experience the freedom of being known by those closest to us. And we are created to desire belonging, created to need connection and belonging, to know that we are loved. We set that whole thing up in week one, but here's what's ultimately true. You ready? To be fully loved requires that we be fully known. And, and this, is just, this is just like my logic working out here, right? Um, to be fully loved requires that we be fully known because if we're not fully known, then we can't be fully loved. No, no, if we're not fully known, then the only parts of us that are loved are the ones that we put out there. The only parts of us that are loved are what we show to other people. You and I cannot ever be fully loved if we're not fully known. But that is terrifying. It is scary to let people get that scary close. What this will require of you and me is courage. Brene Brown, um, she writes, this is so fascinating and enlightening to hear from her, that the original definition of courage, the original definition, when we think about courage, we think, oh, like Braveheart, you know, I don't know, going, going into battle, doing something crazy. Um, but the original definition of courage, this is so fascinating, to speak one's mind, to speak one's mind by telling all of one's heart. This is what it meant to be courageous, the original definition of the word. To speak one's mind, to let people in by sharing all of one's heart. You know this, you don't need me to tell you this, but one of the scariest things in the human experience is giving other people access to your life. Giving people access to your struggles. Giving people access to how your marriage is really doing. Giving people access to how you are really doing. Giving people access to how your faith is really doing. Giving people access into when and in what ways you need help. Because in those moments, we're vulnerable. In those moments, we're defenseless. In those moments, we are sitting exposed at the expense of other people's response, at the expense of what other people think, at the expense of other people's judgments. And I don't know about you, but I don't like not being in that small amount of control over what other people think about me. Because come on, you've had these thoughts. I've had them too. Like, what if I embarrass myself? What if I embarrass myself? What if I'm the only one? What if if, if they really saw what I was walking through, I look weak? What if they really realized, like, I didn't know the answer, I would look dumb? What if it made them want to laugh? Like, I'm supposed to be the smart one. I'm the leader. I'm supposed to be this. I'm supposed to be that. What if I end up embarrassing myself? That's not worth it. So I'm going to keep people far enough away to show them what I want to show them. What if, what if I get judged? Like, come on, you, what if they think less of me? You've been there. You've been there with people. Maybe you've been there with someone you've been in a relationship with, with a spouse, 
There's something you didn't want to share before you even got engaged, you got married. Because what if they think less of me? What if, <clears throat> you've had this thought. In fact, we're all terrible human beings, so we've been on the other side of this. What if they talk about it on the way home? So I'm good. I, not worth it. <clears throat> what, if, what if I get rejected? If one of our greatest needs is to be connected to people, then one of our greatest fears as humans is to be rejected. And it's a more nuanced thing than getting kicked out of the friend group like you're in Mean Girls, right? Like that's not, it's not even about rejected. It's way more nuanced than that. It has to do with safety and trust. Like will this cause someone to love me less? Will this cause someone to never be able to see me the same way again? Will this change people's perception of who I am? Probably yes, so no, nah, I'm, I'm out. And in those moments, what is controlling you and what is controlling me is this thing called shame. Shame. The tangible, painful feeling of humiliation and distress. And shame, shame is the enemy of safe. Shame is the enemy of psychological safety because ultimately, watch this, this is worth writing down. Shame shuts us up and it shuts others out. Shame, shame shuts us up. I'm not sharing. I'm not being real. There's no way I'm being vulnerable. No, no, I'm just gonna shut up and then I'm going to shut others out. They're not gonna get close. I'm gonna show them what I want to show them. They're not going to ever see the real me. They're just gonna see what I portray because it's so easy for us to be ashamed of our story, of our struggles, of our shortcomings, of our secrets, and even our sin. Because here's what shame whispers to you, and here's what shame whispers to me. You're not good enough. Don't let them know it. That you're not where you need to be. Don't let them know it. They'll never see you the same way again. So don't let them know it. That sin, that struggle defines you. Don't let them know it. And as a result, You and I want to control what and how other people see what they see. Psychologists call this impression management. Impression management. Impression management is when you and I influence someone's interpretation of a thing or a place or a person by controlling the information that they receive. This is just kind of a, this is just like social interaction in general. We, we all do this. We're all actually really, really good at this because we've been doing it since we were in grade school, right? But, but you know this, right? Like you, you've been on each side of this, controlling someone's interpretation of a thing, a person, or a place based on what you share, right? Or um, what you don't share. Like you all have that friend that's a storyteller, and it's like, man, I wish everything you experienced was really as good as that story that you shared, right? Like, there's no way it was that cool. Certainly not that funny, right? Because we're, 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 we're controlling the impression of that event, of that thing, based on the information that we share. We've been there. Like, this is my future. I've got three daughters. And decades from now, when they're allowed to start dating, <laughs> they're going to... Give me all the right information about this boy that they like. And I'm going to remember this sermon and I'm not going to believe them. You know, right? Like we we do this. We do this this all the time. Um, But we do it in areas that hold us back as well. Because come on, and this this is for me too. 
But impression management is when you and I essentially communicate our marriages are better than they really are. Um, like our shortcomings, no, no, those are non-existent. Our faith, never shaken, rock solid, all the time. That difficulty we're walking through, no, not, not affecting me. We are good. That relationship with the unhealthy substance, got it totally under control. Parenting, pff, easy. I should write a book. <laughs> Family dynamics, as perfect as my Instagram and my Facebook shows. Impression management. So shame causes us to do, to keep people at a distance. Show them just what we want to show them so they can't see the real because it's terrifying. Shame. Shame causes us to be calculated in what we share. Shame causes us to be calculated in our relationships. Shame forces us to share sparingly. Shame tells us to live in half-truths because it feels... And this is what our thought process, it's better to be fake and accepted than real and potentially rejected. It's better to let everyone think we are good than to risk what they might think if they know that we're not. It's better to show up as we hope to be or think we ought to be rather than show up as we really are. It's safer that way. It's more comfortable that way. It feels easier that way. But the truth is, because we're all human, because none of us are where, where we need to be, because none of us are fully who we ought to be, the truth is, it's really just exhausting. It's lonely. And it not fulfilling in the least bit the connection that we desire. And where we're gonna go today, it is, is not the life that Jesus died to give you. No, the life that Jesus died to give you was to experience freedom and safety and connection to one another. And there is a relational capacity that is unlocked in your life when we feel safe to be real. That for some of us, for some of us, the relational breakthrough and, and friendship breakthrough we've been waiting for is on the other side of this conversation. Because what if shame and the fear of rejection lost its power in our life? What could that do to our relational life, to our friendships, and to our community? In fact, here's a different question. What should compel you and I to overcome the fear of rejection and the fear of letting people get scary close. Amy Edmondson is a, a professor at, at Harvard University. That's where I went to school. And kidding. Um, yeah, that'd be funny. Um, but uh, I don't know why I'm still laughing at that. Um, I, I could have gone there. Um, <laughs> um, anyways, so uh, Amy Edmondson, get it together. Uh, a professor at, at Harvard, and she studies psychological safety. And this is, this is what she wrote about psychological safety. Um, she said... We have a place in our brain, we have a place in our brain, like physically, like this is just, just the, the way our brain is wired, that's always worried about what people think of us, always. 
especially higher, high ups. She's talking about this in the context of, of, of the marketplace and, and business, really in general, but it's certainly true when, when there are people that are above us in our hierarchy. And, then she, and this is so fascinating. As far as the brain is concerned, if our social system rejects us, we could die. As the brain is concerned, just quite literally, the chemistry of our brain, whenever you and I are in danger of being rejected, Whenever you and I are in danger of being rejected, whenever that danger is looming, the way your brain operates, it strikes that as a type of danger that just could kill you. That whenever you and I are in a place where we might experience rejection, fight or flight gets kicked in. And that is your survival instinct that keeps you alive. So as far as just your brain is concerned, your brain thinks this could kill you. How much danger it perceives. Given that our sense of danger is so natural and automatic, the way God wired us. Organizations, that's not what she's saying. This, that's my interpretation. Organizations have to do some pretty special things to overcome that natural trigger. Organizations do have to work really hard to overcome that natural trigger so that they can experience market breakthroughs. Here's the beautiful thing about the good news of what God did for you and me through Jesus is that he did a special thing. He did a miraculous thing. He did a loving thing. He did the most loving thing for you and I to experience relational breakthrough and overcome the natural trigger that we are all hardwired with to run whenever we face rejection. And instead, he created a space for you and I to experience and to cultivate the type of safety that allows us to thrive. The Apostle John, we've, we've talked to him a number of times throughout the course of this series. Um, he wrote the Gospel of John. He also wrote um, these letters near the end of his life, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in the New Testament. They were so creative with how they titled stuff back then. Um, and, and this is what the Apostle Paul, uh, excuse me, another one, the Apostle John writes in 1st John chapter 4. Again, John walked with Jesus Um, He spent time with Jesus. He made sure to tell us in his gospel that he was the one that Jesus loved. That's how he he described himself in in his gospel. He never called himself John. He was always the the disciple that Jesus loved. So arrogant. Um, But just kidding. This is is what he writes in 1 John chapter 4. At the end of his life, as he's reflecting on the life of Jesus and all that he learned from them, he writes this. He says, there is no fear in love. That in love, there is no fear. Because in love, there is Safety. In love, there is no fear of rejection. There is no fear in love. And he goes on, but perfect love, but perfect love, perfect love drives out fear. So, okay, there is no fear in love, but then perfect love, not only does fear not exist in perfect love, but perfect love drives out fear. Perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love gets rid of fear. There is no space of fear in the context of perfect love because fear has to do with punishment. Perfect love, he says. What is perfect love? Perfect love never fails. Perfect love never stops. Perfect love is relentless. Perfect love is complete. Perfect love is safe. God's love for you and God's love for me, here's what he's telling us, is perfect love. There is no fear in God's perfect love because God's love is safe. And then he goes on, because fear has to do with punishment. Well, what, what exactly does he mean by fear of punishment? 
Okay, there is no fear in love. He's not talking about like being afraid of like a height or a, a spider or a snake or anything else that I just happen to be afraid of, right? The fear that he's talking about is he tells the fear that has to do with punishment. That what John is telling us, and in the context of this broader passage, is the fear, the perfect love of God drives out the fear of rejection. The fear of being rejected by God because of our sin. Fear, perfect love, drives out the fear that we would be punished by God for our shortcomings and for our sin. Perfect love drives out the fear that we would be rejected by God, that we would be abandoned by God, that we would ultimately be judged by God. Perfect love drives out the fear that our sins are too big for God. Perfect love drives out the fear that we could never be good enough for God. Perfect love drives out the fear that we could never belong in the family of God. And perfect love drives out those fears because God, who is love, made a way for you and I to belong in the family of God. God made a way that when sin and our shortcomings, it separated us from God. Sin separated us. Sin um, causes us to hide. Sin is the reason why shame exists. And and I don't have time to get into this, but um, if you remember um, in in the Genesis account of the creation of of the world, um, Adam and Eve are created, and then sin enters the world into the first time. And you remember what Adam and Eve did? They hid from God because they were ashamed. They were afraid. And so they hid that, that that shame, right? So we experience shame exists because sin exists in the world. So we hide, we isolate, we're afraid. And that vicious cycle is what we live in. But what John is telling us here is that Jesus did a work to eliminate this thing called sin so that it would no longer be in the way between us and relationship with our heavenly father. Sin is the reason that there is shame. Yes, but Jesus came. To show us perfect love, Jesus came to be a sacrifice for our sin so that we could live in perfect relationship with our heavenly Father. Jesus came to die as a sacrifice for our sins so that there would be nothing that could separate us from the love of God, that no sin, no secret, no struggle, no part of your story, no shortcoming, no doubt of your faith could separate you from the love of God that is made available to us by the way of Jesus. John is telling us that perfect love is safe, God's love is perfect love, and God's love obliterates the fear of rejection. That when you put your faith in Jesus, this safe love is now available to you. That our relationship with our Heavenly Father exists in the context of this safe love. There is no shame. There is no condemnation. No, no, no. We can experience the safety of a secure love that we could never separate ourselves from. What does that have to do with creating safety with each other? Everything. The Apostle John, that was verse 18. He tells us about the love of God, the perfect love of God. And then in the very next verse, he writes this, verse 19. 
we love. Now it goes from God's love to our love. Because in the New Testament, we've talked about this all the time, and I'm going to talk about it till we're blue in the face because we cannot miss this. In the New Testament, you cannot separate love from God from love for each other. So he says, we love because he first loved us. And then, this is John. I didn't write this. You can't be mad at me, Christians. You can be mad at John. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or a sister is a liar. Such strong language. And here's what John is saying. What God offers us, we are now called to offer and cultivate with each That what God offers us through Jesus, he wants to offer to others through us. That if we claim to love God, Jesus' followers, if we claim to be Christian, Jesus' followers, we cannot do so or claim so apart from showing the same love to each other that God in Christ showed us. That the safe space that the gospel creates for you and for me is the safe space that you and I in turn are meant and created to create for each other. That you and I cannot live in the safety of the gospel and not extend and cultivate that safety with each other. It is missing the mark. In the gospel that we all have this sin problem that separated us from God. And so God's perfect love came and fixed it so that we could be friends of God, live in a relationship with God. The gospel is the great equalizer. The gospel is the great equalizer because there isn't anything that separates us as humanity. There's no better among us because we all have the same need and we've all got the same problem and we're all prone to the same shame that Jesus came to fix. And here's ultimately what's true. Ready? If there isn't anything that we can't bring to God, then there shouldn't be anything that we can't bring to each other. And the foundation isn't our own energy. No, no, no. It isn't our own willpower. The foundation for this is God's love for us. We love, why? Because he first loved us. When our love for each other, when our love for one another is rooted in God's love for us, it has no limits. And this is what makes community and friendships that has Jesus at the center so unique and compelling. This is what Jesus commanded us. Again, this is what John wrote and experienced. John chapter 13, we'll recall it again. This is us living this out. A new command I give you, he writes. A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. I loved you first. So reflect this love, the safety you've experienced in the gospel. Cultivate it with one another. The same love that I have showed you, so you must love one another. And it is the context of this love. Is it in the context of that safety where we can really carry each other's burdens because we know each other's burdens? It's in the context of this love that we can really sharpen each other. This is in that context where iron can really sharpen iron. 
Because we know where we're really at. We know where we're dull. And we can challenge each other and push each other and encourage each other. It is in the context of this love and safety that our doubt can be met with the encouragement of the community around us. It is in the context of this love and this safety that our struggles can be met with compassion, but also accountability is in the safety of this kind of love that the lies that we've believed for far too long can be met with truth. It's often been the case for me that I often hear something the clearest from God through the people in my lives that want to point me to him. And this can be true of us when we let people in. As we cultivate the community and the friendships and the safety that we were created for. If you're a Jesus follower, you and I, we are responsible for being a safe space to one another. It's unavoidable. It's unavoidable. We are responsible for creating that safe space for each other. That the same love that drives out the fear of rejection, that drives out shame, that drives out embarrassment, that drives out insecurity, we are to show to each other. It's not an option. Because our God who is love showed us his love and says, now I want you to cultivate this with each other. But for a moment, can you just imagine personally the freedom and the confidence that we could live with knowing that that safety is available to us and for us in the midst of our community. Could you imagine the weight off that you can now live knowing you don't have to fake it anymore. You don't have to pretend anymore. You don't have to act like you have it all together anymore. That we can cultivate the kind of safety where we can let people in. Where they don't have to come as they ought to be, but we can all come to each other as we are. And could you imagine how compelling this would be to the world on the outside that thinks you've got to be perfect to make it on the inside? That when the world starts to see the church isn't made up of perfect people, it's just made up of people that need a perfect God. Could you imagine how compelling it would be if we really started to accept and create the safety for one another that maybe an unbelieving world on the outside might actually start to believe there could be a place for them here because they've seen it happen with one another first. Being known in a lonely world starts here. We get to experience safety from God, but then we get to create it and cultivate it with each other as God's love as the foundation. So, as we close, just a couple words of encouragement as we embark on this journey to be real and to allow people to get scary close. This might feel clunky at first, okay? There might be some initial awkwardness. That's okay. In fact, if we're just being real, for some of you, this has never been true of any of your friendships. And so I'm just gonna encourage you. It's gonna take time. It's gonna take some practice. And it's okay to be patient. It's okay to start small and to go slow. You've got to build trust with people. And we talked last week what it looks like to cultivate the village of people around you. Um, 
Because here's also true. I want you to be safe and I want you to, um, to, to be patient, I mean, and to, to figure out who you can trust and cultivate that trust. Because while every Jesus follower should be a safe place, the reality is not everyone is gonna be a safe place. So I don't want you to irresponsibly, you know, I'm not promising everyone's gonna be safe, right? We, we've gotta cultivate that. So it's okay if you're patient. It's okay if you'd ask the question, okay, who has earned this trust with me? How can I be the person that would earn trust others, right? And can I tell you what this message isn't, isn't supposed to be? <clears throat> Here's a way to not do this. Don't go emotionally vomit on Facebook. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, just don't do it. You'll do it on accident, like 1030 at night, like, right? Don't, that's not, that's not the place for this. In the trial and error, you're going to find the avenues of people and the small groups and the relationships and the friendships where you can be real with each other. It might be you seeking someone out or seeking a couple of people out or seeking out a group. Say, hey, listen, this might be kind of weird, but I'd like to start building that kind of trust with you to be fully known. I'm like, literally, maybe you should say that to some people this week. Because here's what's also true. Not everyone needs to know everything but someone does. Not everyone needs to know everything that's going on on the inside, but someone does. And just so you know, I'm not just preaching something. There are a few people in my life that know everything about me because I'm terrified to live in a world where there might be anything hidden from people because there's way too much at stake. So not everyone has to know everything, but someone, people, some people have to know everything. And it'll be scary. It'll be scary if you go first. But here's the other thing. Vulnerability begets vulnerability. Out of your vulnerability will be born more vulnerability in others. You remember they used to tell you in school all the time, don't be nervous to ask a question because I promise someone else has the same one, you know? This is that. Your vulnerability will give the courage for someone else to be vulnerable. And suddenly you'll start to see, man, we really are in this together. And then lastly, I just want to be very upfront about this, just in case we've, we've missed it. The purpose behind this, the purpose behind being real, the purpose behind the vulnerability, it's way bigger than just, oh, okay, good, feel good, I got it off my chest. Okay, good, good, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I, cool, I can breathe now, somebody knows. It's not just for someone to know. If you're a Jesus follower in the room, this is an avenue for growth. Like this is an avenue for you to be met with compassion, but also to be challenged, for there to be accountability in your life, for you to experience grace and truth in equal parts in your life. And whenever we create safety to be fully known, we also create safety and trust for people to speak truth into our lives so that our marriages get better, our faith goes stronger, we follow Jesus better. There's purpose behind it. And, and guys, I can stereotype you because I am one, okay? You, we struggle with this. We, we, it's just, it's a little less natural for us. So I just wanna challenge you, don't brush off this conversation. Because it matters. You need it, I need it, we all need it. And if you are not a follower of Jesus, if you've longed for the safety of being known, but have never been able to find it, 
And if you've ever experienced a lack of safety at the hands of a Christian, I first want to say, I'm sorry. We don't always get it right. But can I just tell you that the beginning of that safety is available to you by way of the love of God who sent Jesus to save you, who sent Jesus to free you from your shame so that when you place your trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus, there isn't anything that could ever separate you from the love of God. That safety is available to you just by believing in Jesus, his sacrifice and his love for you. And thankfully for all of us, John writes, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. There is safety in that family. And now our job is to cultivate that within this family, to cultivate it with each other, to create space for people to get scary close. And may an unbelieving world see it and be compelled to be a part of it. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the safety of your love. We are grateful for the love that you have shown We're so grateful for the love that you have lavished on us. We're so grateful that you did whatever it took to bring us close. May that safety be cultivated within our relationships with one another. And may we experience the freedom of being fully known. And may you use those relationships and those friendships to spur us on to your best for our lives. In Jesus' name that we pray, amen.